Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our host, Bob Cheviar. Bob is a longtime teaching pro in Westchester County, New York, and a former top 15 ranked player in the United States in the men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles in the late 1980s and early 90s. He is also the author of the path-breaking book, Deconstructing Tennis, The 4D System. The book lays out a simple and complete framework for how to use the time between points in tennis. Bob's co-host on Outside the Lines is Scott Shannon, also a teaching pro in Westchester, whose best ranking in men's open singles was number two in the East in 1980. He was also ranked number one in the East that year in doubles with Peter Bromley. Scott was also a top 10 player in the U.S. in 35 and over singles and doubles. Your hosts hope to help you get your mental approach more on target. Welcome to, to Outside the Lines. I'm Bob Chevier, your host, and I'm here with Scott Shannon, my co-host. And today we're going to do a review of the U.S. Open. I think we have some interesting things in store from you, for you. It was obviously a very exciting event with the two young women, Radu Kanu and Fernandez, playing in the women's final, Djokovic going for the Grand Slam in the men's final, Corey Goff getting to the final of the women's doubles. So there were a lot of interesting things going on. And we have, as we've been doing, we have some statistics to make what I think are going to be some unique points about what was really happening out there. Uh, but first, Scott, let me just ask you, I mean, this was a, a grand slam, two weeks of both of us watching a lot of tennis. Uh, are, are you a little depleted or exhausted at this point? Did, did it take a lot out of you, this Grand Slam? It totally did, Bob. Uh, and I have to say, though, that the excitement level of this tournament, considering the unusual characteristics of the field, made up for it to some degree and kept me motivated. Uh, I really enjoyed going to the tournament live on Labor Day, getting to see Radakanu, getting to see Rev Zarev, getting to see Berrettini a little bit, watching some of uh, Stozier and her partner is Zhang. Yeah, Shui Zhang, yes. Zhang, and seeing them play some doubles, which is always, I think, a very important thing to do when you go to the tournament live is to get up there close uh was on court 17 great viewing place and i saw some tremendous doubles going on there especially because samantha stozier is your consummate veteran and doubles expert and she's just strong as hell she works out for sure all the time so Yes, I was depleted and I was revved up at the same time. Good. So uh, we're going to go to the women's singles final first. But just a note to all of our listeners, at the end, I think we'll have time to squeeze it in. We will have reviews of four more commentators who were commentating on ESPN. 
And it'll be Patrick McEnroe, Chris Everett, Renee Stubbs, and Alexandra Stevenson. And we'll be giving our reviews of how they did. Uh, keep in mind, listeners, uh, Scott in particular is looking to take their place, one of them, if he could uh, get this podcast out there. So I'll uh, take Chrissy's but, place. Take Chrissy's. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm going to use first serve. I always tell my students getting a high percentage of first serves in and putting them in good locations can really change the outcome of a match. It's the way everything starts in the point. The serve is just so important. So in getting ready or in watching actually live the Fernandez Raducanu final, I just felt that Fernandez wasn't serving the way I had seen her serve earlier in the tournament. So I went back then and looked at some numbers and it was really, this really struck me. Against Naomi Osaka, Fernandez got in 80% of her first serves. And of those that she got in, she won 78% of those points. This was a phenomenal performance. But in subsequent rounds, if we looked at what Fernandez actually did when she played Kerber, Svitolina, and Sabalenka, she averaged getting only 58% of her first serves in. And if we look at those three matches as well, and we go back and look at what percentage of those first serves she won, it was 68%. So two things struck me. One is against Osaka, Fernandez had her dream match. She played out of this world. Couldn't actually, no one could say she could play better. And on the, on the other hand, though, the other matches sort of suggest what her real level is, her true level of percentage of first serves in and winning percentage. And so I did something called a counterfactual. I said, let's just say that against Raducanu, she got in the same percentage of serves as she did against Kerber, Svitolina, and Sabalenka. Well, that would have been the same because against Raducanu, she got 58%. And that was her average against those other three. So she played right on average for getting it in. But here was the difference. In those three matches, she won 68% of the points once the ball was in, uh, in on the first serve. Against Raducanu, only 56%. So looking at that counterfactual, if we're able to you can actually calculate and say, let's imagine against Raducanu that she got 68% of the points once she got her first serve in. Well, she actually would have won six more points. And the total point outcome in the match, instead of 81-68 for Raducanu, would have been 75-74 for Raducanu. That sounds like a horse race to me, Scott too close to call. I love the uh, quantitative analysis, Bob, because it gives you something to 
get your teeth into and back up sometimes the now the conclusions that we come to and the way we look at matches. The thing that I would add to this, watching Raducanu in person against a very lackluster Shelby Rogers, I saw Raducanu with her athleticism really step it up when it comes to the return of serve. So I'm not getting away from serving, and I think that uh, that information is important. But now you have Fernandez versus Raducanu in the final, and you have Fernandez coming down to earth a little bit in how she normally serves. And then you have Raducanu, who I think was more aggressive most of the time, or at least more of the time than some of the other players Zabalenka sometimes would step it up, but they were getting the ball back in play and then trying to win playing out the point. With Raducanu, if you have gave her any chance to jump on the return, she did. And you can see it from, especially when you're up close standing behind her because her body just launches into it and she rotates at such a high speed that it's apparent versus many of the other opponents. So that was like a, a little footnote to the whole thing in terms of Fernandez serving, Raducanu returning, and what the effect was going to be with, with Layla. Well, Scott, I think you're spot on with that comment because once the first serve is in play, the percentage of points that the server is going to win is now in, in detail in relationship to the opponent and the number one shot the opponent has in that situation, just like you said, is the return of serve. So it certainly is highly suggestive from these numbers that Radu Kano's return of serve was a big difference maker in this match. To also go back just to the Naomi Osaka match with Fernandez, I did the counterfactual with her and I said, how many points would it have been different if Fernandez had served at her average level rather than her superhuman level against Osaka? And I found, after crunching the numbers, that Osaka would have won 11 more points than she actually won. In other words, Fernandez's 99-93 advantage would have become a 104-88 advantage for Osaka. 104-88 is a comfortable win. And I think the match was not that far away, if Fernandez hadn't played amazingly well, of being a comfortable win for Osaka. If I'm Osaka and I'm looking at this the right way, I'm saying I played against the superhuman that day. I know I lost. I'm upset. But that performance can't almost never, ever be duplicated. It was so outstanding. Yep, it's definitely true. You have to take a very good look at how your opponent is playing compared to their average. Because when, as players, we used to call it playing, in, we were in the tree, we were in the zone. There's all kinds of descriptions for it, but on given days, you're playing way above your average. 
and you don't always know exactly why that is. You're just feeling good, keen in, mentally stable and, and relaxed and focused. And, you know, that's one of the intangibles that occurs uh, on the court during these matches. Yeah, so Scott, that I don't want to go too far into the woods on the next subject, but women's Grand Slam champions since 2017 through this year, there have been 14 newcomers winning Grand Slams out of the 19 titles that were given out during that time period. And at the same time, there was an article on CNN.com by a business analyst who said the question, the headline was something like, will Radu Kanu be the first billion dollar female athlete? What I know we're not experts on this, so I don't want to get into it too much, but what what's your feelings about if you were in her camp or Layla's camp as well, because she got a tremendous boost in publicity. Everyone's going to be watching for her now. How would you be advising them to handle this newfound celebrity? Great question, Bob. And I think it's completely pertinent to what's going on in the last few months, especially with what Naomi Osaka has come up with she being the highest paid athlete and all that. And then what has happened to her emotionally, though I did like the fact that I saw her at the, the Met Gala, that she was out and about doing some something social. And um, the, the thing that I would tell them is, listen, Listen to your own words and your coach's words about staying in the moment and taking it one day at a time. When you get ahead of yourself, which I think is what that business gentleman was saying, the first billion dollar athlete, I think that that is a completely unfair and just trying to tantalize the public I think that's looking so far into the future and putting possibly pressure on Radicanu and Fernandez in the same sentence, because here these rising stars are so young, they're just smiling and loving it almost all the way. And now everybody is starting to do predictions. They're putting a dollar sign next to their career and I think that the whole idea of staying grounded and in the present is just more important than ever. I, I couldn't agree I more. Them. I mean, you did bring up the gala. Uh, and if I'm a young, successful tennis athlete, female, rather than going to the gala, uh, I'd be having lunch with Greta Thornburg and publicizing the event and associating myself with causes rather than fancy dresses and bunch of millionaires walking around. I'd be establishing myself in a whole other way. But again, we don't want to get too far into it on this. Uh, I, I did want to. I was only I was only mentioning this because we're yeah. concerned about her mental health. And this just shows that she's willing 
to get out in the public and be, you know, on TV and in the magazines and stuff. Um, that's that's all I was really yeah. well, enjoying. If I were a woman, you couldn't have paid me enough to wear what Osaka wore. I thought it was hideous, <laughs> but she went. Okay, good for her. Uh, very exciting for American tennis fans. Catherine McNally and Corey Goff got to the finals of the women's doubles and they put up a great fight. I've been following them playing doubles since they came up from the juniors and started to play together a couple of years ago. And they're making tremendous progress in a team. And they ended up losing 6-3 in the third set to Shui Zhang and Sam Stozer, who Scott was mentioning before. But it's important for tennis fans to know that it was actually three all and they had their opponents love 30 and 1540 to go up the break and possibly win that match. And at 1540, absolutely perfect serve from Shui Zhang to hit an ace 3040. But then on that add point, the return of serve from Corey Goff she went right to the net player who was playing in the I formation, who was a foot from the net, and she had an easy put away to get back to Deuce, and the whole match changed around. So I did want to. And it was Stozier there who has like the solidest, solidest volley. She does overall in this match, she had blown a couple, but still, I, I didn't feel. In fact, I was going to mention to you the number one thing I noticed because I always like watching women's doubles so I could learn something to then bring back to my students and work with them on the court. But here's the number one play I saw. Take any ground stroke that is where you can step inside the baseline and hit it at 100 miles an hour right at the net man. How do you think that would go over with our students? <laughs> They would say, screw you, because we have to go to lunch with these people. <laughs> exactly. Right. And they can't hit it 100 miles an hour anyway. But if they go at somebody like that and the other person is going to say, you're trying to hit me in the face. Exactly. Like, no, they're not. <laughs> now, Corey Goff got hit a couple times. It wasn't they weren't like going to try to hit her. They were hitting a good quality shot. and She happened to be standing there. To me, that's always been a part of doubles, but that's not something that I think you or I, you were just uh, uh, sort of agreeing there saying, that's not something we can bring to our lesson court and say, here's how you're going to do it. Every time you get a second serve, just go right at the player and blow them out of the box. I agree. Now, there was say, a, would... there was another thing that I think Stozier did particularly well in the first set as a veteran, and that was to lob the return of serve, keep it out of the poacher's zone, and immediately take the net herself behind the lob. That's a play that I'm sure you teach all the time. Oh, oh, totally. Um, it's incredible how close people get to the net in their positioning. And you must be able to go over their head a number of times to just show them they're out of position and as Stozier would do, come right to the net and take the net. 
So you don't even have to do anything catastrophic to get up there, but you have to control that lob, especially can be difficult off the return of serve, but I'm a huge proponent of it. And I've won some doubles matches just solely on the fact that I've caught people out of position being too tight on the net and going over their head and completely disarming them and then getting on the offensive. This shows how Stozier, being the veteran, knows all the ins and outs and can pull some tricks out of her bag. Unfortunately, this is a trick that I think really should be more prevalent on the on the women's tour. Maybe not on the men's tour as much because you can't return serve with a great lob very often because the serves are going so, so fast. But, and you have men who are now between like 6'1 and 6'7 half the time, and it's very hard to get up and over their heads with a successful lob. Well, that being said, Scott, I watched a little of the men's final, and Jamie Murray in the first set was driving the guys that actually won it. But in the first set, he was driving them nuts. He got lob over the net man like 10 times in a row. He's just like, I'm not going to let you stand a foot from the net. End of story. So it is possible in the men's game, too. I agree, though, with you. It's it's more difficult with the power on those serves. So congratulations to Goff and McNally. And I expect to see any, any one of these slams coming up. They could well be the champions. They've come a long way, and they were so close in this match. And now we're going to go and speak about Novak Djokovic, as we promised, going for the Grand Slam. This was a big, big moment in tennis history. And his opponent played, let me just say, to start, the near-perfect match. But I started by using the, to try to figure out exactly what happened, use the website statistics, not my own, which I'll talk about in a little bit. And I tried to compare what Djokovic did in the previous six rounds with what he did against Medvedev. And the fact is, against Medvedev, he only got 54% of his first serves in the box, Djokovic. Again, we're looking at the start of the point, how important it is. His average in the other six matches was 64%. He was 10% below what he had been doing. The good news for him, though, was when he got the first serve in against Medvedev, he won 80% of the points. So the fact that his percentage was down quite a bit really hurt him. He wasn't allowing himself to get into that position where he could dominate the play because 80% anyone on the tour would take winning 80% of your first serves if you're getting the first serve in. So, so Bob, again, I'm sorry, Scott, just let me finish this. Oh, okay, go ahead. Um, this allowed me to calculate if he had gotten his average amount, 64 instead of 54, how many more points would that have won him? Well, he lost in, in the reality 99 to 83 in points and he would have won just four more points. He still would have been 95-87 down. Now, that's still a pretty convincing lead in tennis. It would take quite a bit of shenanigans um, 
what I mean by like winning all the important points and that type of thing for a 95-87 deficit to translate into victory. So it suggests that we have to look elsewhere beyond the serve to explain Djokovic's defeat. Scott, I'm sorry, go ahead. What I was gonna say before was that the, actually I lost my train of thought, Bob, keep going and I'll come oh, back to it. Okay. So every once in a while, I enjoy charting the matches as I'm watching them. And I record two things. What is the point ending stroke? So for example, I serve an ace, the point ending stroke is a serve, or I serve a weak second serve to Scott and he takes a forehand return and hits a winner. The point ending shot is his forehand winner. I, I record the point ending shot as well as the length of the rally. Now, brain game tennis, Craig O'Shaughnessy has really popularized looking at the length of the rally as an interesting way of figuring out what's happening in a match. And he, at one point, was advising Djokovic on different patterns of play to use. But what he did find with Djokovic, as well as all of the other top players, Nadal, Federer, et cetera, was that they excelled in the zero to four shot category in intermediate length points, five to eight, or long points, more than nine shots, they were about even with their opponents. So all of the difference in success or failure at this top level of men's tennis was explained in zero to four. So I thought it would be interesting then to go back, because I did chart this one, and see what happened between Djokovic and Medvedev in zero through four. Now, Bob, Bob, let me interject one little quick thing. Yes. Don't lose your train. Okay. In zero to four, the first two shots are what? Serve, return of serve. Yes. Just the listeners should, should keep that in mind that those are the significant shots that we've talked about. And here, Bob is now zeroing in on zero to four in terms of the length of the rally with 50% of those results being, or in terms of the rally going to four, you would have 50% of the shots. One was a serve, one was a return. Right, well, just as an aside, because I've used the O'Shaughnessy paradigm, the zero through four, five through eight, nine plus, but I've also gone back and said, you know what? We're tennis players. Serve and return a serve matter. It should be zero, one, two, and three, two, three, four, and then the other two, five through eight and nine plus. And I did that for this particular match. And it didn't really illuminate anything different from what. I've seen by looking at zero to four in this match, but I have looked at other matches where it's very clear that bunching them all together, zero to four, and not separating out just the serve and return 
gives you a deceptive picture about what actually happened in the match. So before what I say, uh, tell you what exactly happened with Medvedev and Djokovic, let me just mention that I happened to do this same charting the year before when Medvedev played Dominic Team in the semifinals of the U.S. Open, and Team beat him in three straight sets. I actually thought Medvedev was a slight favorite in that match, but he really got clobbered. And when we look at that breakdown, we see Dominic Team destroyed. Medvedev in the zero to four, and he lost by a slight margin in each of the other two categories. However, in this particular match that we just had played, Medvedev and Djokovic, they were basically even. Medvedev actually won two more points than Djokovic in zero to four, and he won the middle, the five to eight, by a couple of shots, and he significantly won the nine plus by a, a margin of six points. So we could say, and then I went back and looked what happened in that zero to four. Remember, I'm recording the point ending shot, and Medvedev dramatically cut down on his forehand errors early in the point. So I could imagine Scott, his coach, and he looking at the tape and saying, when we go out in the U.S. Open final or semifinal big match, we're going to not make the same mistake we did last year of trying to kill the ball early in the point. Let's use your legs. You're a great runner. You're a great counterpuncher. Extend the points and see where we get from here. Do you think that they might have done that, Scott? Yes, I think that these guys are thinking outside the box and they have access to a tremendous amount of information. And also to add to that tactic, you have to think going into the final, the coaches and the brain trust there for Medvedev, plus I don't think that he's not a smart guy. I think he's probably a very bright guy. You know, Djokovic has played a tremendous amount of time on the court at the U.S. Open. Was it five hours more than Medvedev? Yes. Okay. So you know that he's really been grinding it out and coming back and winning these close matches and really physically and mentally exerting himself. On top of the fact that here he is going for not just a slam, but the grand slam to be the second man in open history to achieve this and the interference and pressure that that may bring. But the fact that Medvedev was going to get into the points and extend the points immediately tacked into how fit and how spry was Djokovic really feeling. Most of the time, I thought Djokovic looked pretty good, and he looked like himself. And then he would miss the shot, but I didn't think, like John McEnroe said, that he was losing his legs. I thought he was at the ball, and he mistimed it or missed the shot for some mechanical reason that's sometimes hard to pinpoint uh, you know, in the moment. But I think that the 
prevailing thinking was make Djokovic play as much as possible and wait till later, which I think you're going to now get to, wait till later to do things that are more appropriate for ending the point. Yeah. So I I, I think they did have that plan. And the announcers during the match were saying, well, what does Djokovic do now? Well, one thing he did do, and I must say, I've never seen him play the net position as well as he did. He came to the net a lot. He did some serve in Bali. Yes, he missed a couple where the passing shot got dipped at his feet at 100 miles an hour. Well, that can happen at this level of tennis. But overall, his net approaches and his volleys and overheads, not only did they look good, but they were a big winner for him out there. What to me was missing, and I think this is a little bit of a mindset where you, as a player, you forget all the tools you need in your toolbox. And here's what I mean. Djokovic got used to, let's go back to 2019 Wimbledon with Federer, saying once it gets close, I go into lockdown. In other words, I get every ball and I get it back really solid and deep. I'm not going for any winners, but the other guy can't get it past me and I'm not making an error. That is a great way to play against Federer. And it worked. He won that fifth set tiebreaker at 12 all. Tremendous comeback to stay in there in that match. However, in this particular case, by going round by round and winning with lockdown repeatedly, like he beats Vera, went into lockdown. What was neglected was his ability to play offense. And I remember matches a few years ago on red clay where Nadal would beat Djokovic in the first set and then Djokovic would say, okay, I got to go after him. And he, he beat him six love on red clay by playing an attacking brand of tennis, even with Nadal's defensive skills. To me, I mean, I had a game plan for him once he was down a set and a half. He needed to hit his backhand up the line. And he's got a great one, but he was content to just rally cross court, cross court, longer rally, longer rally. Djokovic did particularly poorly in terms of winners and his backhand unforced errors versus winners was the lowest I've ever seen. He didn't go for enough on his backhand early enough in the point compared to what he's done in the past. Scott, I mean, that's a pretty standard thing, isn't it? If, if you need more offense, you bang it up the line. Yes, because you are, taking more time away from your opponent by going straight up the line. And you're also doing what the opponent is figuring you're not going to do so much because cross court is the shot of choice. And it's going to keep you safe in the point and open up the court possibly. And so going cross court and maybe using a little bit more angle because with Medvedev, you had to make Medvedev play outside of the power channels, which is through the middle of the court. 
when Medvedev is set up to hit a ball, he can hurt you so badly. Hits the ball very flat. He's taking the ball going forward, even though he starts in like Alaska for the beginning of the point sometimes and whatever. <laughs> yeah. Moves up into that court so early and so effectively. You need to take him off the court and open up the court so that you can run him around a little and make him hit his shots on the run. So I agree that not changing that tactic, because also you can sneak in if you go up the line with a very strong shot and you have to play offense in that situation, like you said, you can follow it in and sneak in behind it and then take a volley, hit it on an angle or hit it cross court to his backhand. And Medvedev is not gonna pass you as often on his backhand if he's on the run and really getting out there on the side of the court. Yeah, so I <clears throat> I just feel no back. Sorry. I feel no back just didn't have a plan B. And his plan A certainly got him through so many matches this year, 27 Grand Slam matches in a row. I mean, it's really incredible playing. And but when it back, came time to right? Yes. When it Incredible came time deficits. to come up with, say, today, this isn't going to work, he really wasn't that adaptable or flexible to trying what I thought he needed to do, or at least something different. Maybe he wouldn't have made the same choice I would have made, but he seemed to just keep playing the same way. And Bob, one more little thing before we go on to the next thing. He did... He did work some drop shots into his game plan there at a point, but it looked completely listless. It, 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 it was pathetic the way he hit the drop shot. He missed it by so much, but it didn't even look like the right time to do it. He was doing it like, oh, I have to, I have to finish this point now because I'm not going to win the point if the point gets extended. And I was like, uh-oh, he's really in trouble because these drop shots – are without purpose, really. Well, you you bring up, I mean, the, I think the two are really connected. Just think of Rafa, who has a very good forehand drop shot. It's all set up because he's hitting the forehand with such pace and spin that his opponent is on his heels. And then when he mixes in the drop, it doesn't even have to be that perfect because he's set him up with some good body punches with that heavy forehand. Again, and not playing it. Yeah, go ahead. If I may say so, Medvedev is probably one of the top players that when you hit the drop shot, it has to be at the right time and it has to be a good one because this guy has tentacles like an octopus in terms of covering the court. It's amazing what he gets to. Totally agreed. Um, so I'd like to go to our um, review of the commentators. Uh, right. And my wife said, you know, last time you did this, you always made Scott go first, and then you got the final word, and you did that every time. It's not fair. So <laughs> I want to be, be fair. So I'm going to give the first person patrick McEnroe, and i'll say what i feel about him and then you'll get to go second okay 
Right. And Bob, I didn't really hear Renee Stubbs that much. I did hear her once. Okay. And or Alexandra Stevenson. I didn't really get, um, but I did get a lot of time uh, hearing Everett and Patrick. So just going into it, I'll let you know. Uh, I don't really have uh, too much feeling uh, on the other two, maybe a little bit about Renee. So go uh, ahead. Okay. So with Patrick, what I realized when I really started to say he's speaking, listen to him, evaluate how he's doing. I realized that when he's in the booth with John, personality wise, at least for me, John overshadowed him and I never really heard his voice. When I actually started hearing him as him, I thought his comments always added something. He'd give good background information when the players had played before. He'd notice the difference between how a player was doing when he was slicing his backhand versus top spinning his backhand. I thought he did a, a really solid job. And uh, I'm going to give him, he's right up there with Darren Cahill for me. He's doing a great job. Okay. Uh, I'm not quite as enamored with Patrick McEnroe as you are. And I would really be careful myself in terms of making a comparison with John, because I think John is at another level. And I don't know if this just comes to him so naturally, but he has just developed uh, as a commentator and he's there at all the matches and he's been doing it for a lot, a long time now. So I think that Patrick is certainly a different kind of, has a different kind of delivery in terms of the analysis. I think at times Patrick could lend a little more substance to what he is actually saying there. And I think that he was doing some cheerleading at times uh, where, you know, when you're in that position, you should just stay away from that unless some kind of an amazing thing happens where you have to just exclaim what, how unusually good it is and whatever. Uh, but certainly Patrick knows what he's, he's talking about and what's going on down there. I just think he could be a little bit more uh, definitive in terms of enhancing the experience for the listener who is your average tennis player, most likely. And, you know, he, he could improve in, in that area, I think, mm -hmm. uh, going forward. He could take a lesson from John and not get into the booth too often with John, try to get off on his own a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> oh, he did a bit of that too. So, but I, I did notice when he was with John, um, how I wasn't quite there. And that, that's more my issue. Okay. Chris Everett. You're first. I, uh, I've listened to Chris Everett an awful lot, and I've also read uh, what she's had to uh, write about tennis and different issues uh, over the years. I think that all in all, she is a very good analytic mind in terms of what's going on with the match. I think, though, that she gets a little bit into the weeds from sort of a old school mentality in terms of what she's saying about the players. I just thought that it was something that 
I didn't really know her when I was playing a little bit on the circuit, you know, 30, 40 years ago. But it seems to me that it's something that was being talked about and said by the players on the tour way back in the 70s and the 80s when she was a top player. And I think she's just kind of repeating some of the things that have been commonplace in terms of tennis analysis. And one example of it was this whole idea that the Radicanu and Fernandez being so young that they're really like not developed. And she made that comment numerous times. And I was like, these women are women and they are in great shape and they are strong. Radicanu is as strong as any of them out there, except for maybe uh, Zachary um, from, uh, from Greece, but Layla doesn't look so muscular like some of the other ones, but she is in tremendous shape and she's a great athlete, moves beautifully. So I didn't really think that that Chris Everett was doing any service to uh, these players in kind of putting them into their age category and, and commenting like that. But well, generally well, I thought she was bringing some some good insights into what was happening during the match. What was the next thing that the player should be trying to do to turn it around? And I think, Bob, you and I both agree that that is the pivotal uh, concept in terms of changing a match from a losing strategy to a winning strategy. Even if you don't execute it perfectly, doing something that's intelligent to change the course of the match. I think that that Chrissy Everett uh, comes up with a very good comment in that area when it's apparent that something needs to be different. She says, mm -hmm. I don't understand why she's not starting to do X, Y, or Z. And I appreciate that uh, an awful lot from a commentator. Okay. Well, just to go with what you were saying, uh, and I just want to, before I give my comment, mentioned that when Chris Everett was playing, I had a tremendous amount of respect for her as a player. She was one of the best backhands ever developed in terms of consistency and variety. But at this point, some of her comments I actually find offensive. Going to your point that these were undeveloped young women, she actually called them girls quite a few times. This is the women's final. These are not girls. These are young women. And it's offensive to the listeners to have to listen to someone use this very poor choice of terminology from like the 1950s. And the second thing, and Chris says this in every final that she broadcasts, at some point, she'll go to this cliche. Now we get to see who wants it more. To me, there's nothing more false than framing a battle between two good players as a battle of who wants it more. Obviously, they have both. They both have tremendous amounts of talent. They put tons of time on the practice court. And the more time you practice and devote to honing your skills, the more you want it. Both players want it equally. What differs is the diff is 
a player's ability to execute in that moment. The next time they play, it may be totally different. Look, look at Djokovic and Medvedev in the Australian Open. Djokovic did execute. Medvedev maybe didn't have such a good plan, and he got clobbered. This was a totally different match. So much depends upon your ability to execute and have a good plan, not to say, oh, Djokovic, imagine saying he didn't really want it as much as Medvedev. Now, that would be absurd. And I, I think that comment should be thrown in the garbage heap. And also, Bob, because Chrissy Everett mostly does the women's matches, basically she does, right? Yes. The women's. Then it's becoming almost sexist because she's making those comments totally according to females that she's watching, as opposed to a man, a male's a men's match saying, okay, now we're going to see who wants it more. Right. Mm -hmm. So I yes. think that she definitely gets into the weeds with uh, some of these, you know, comments that, that are just insensitive to the times. Okay, let's leave Chrissy alone now, and um, we'll move on to Renee Stubbs, and um, I will go first with her. Like you said, you don't, you didn't see her broadcast much. Uh, I think she's extremely insightful, but also, I, I'm not sure if you were aware of this, she's also Sam Stozer's coach. So she was no. there in the stands during the doubles final. And she, Renee Stubbs was a great doubles player. And to me, it was visible on the court in terms of Stozer's shot selection and her choices at different key moments in the match that uh, someone who really knew doubles had instructed her, how do you play this game? So I not only like her comments, I think they're often very process-oriented rather than results-oriented, which I like, but she also is, she's still in the game. Stozer may not be playing that much longer, but she's doing a fantastic job uh, of getting Stozer ready. I mean, to win a Grand Slam at 38 years old is a tremendous achievement. Absolutely. One thing that probably should be mentioned though is that Sam Stozier has been playing a high level of dubs for a while now. I think what's what Renee probably brings to that relationship is a fine tuning and a support system in terms of what Stozier is doing on the court as she does get older, maximizing the use of her skills so that there won't be as many age-related problems because as you and I both know, as we've gotten older, we've gotten smarter and sometimes played better, like within our age groups, played better. In fact, I think I'm at times in the last 10 years played better than when I played in my 20s because I didn't really know what I was doing in my 20s. And by the time I was in my 40s, I knew a lot more what I was doing. So I think that Renee Stubbs brought, could bring that level of experience and expertise into an aging player who is already uh, very well developed and just 
tweak it and and do some little things that are significant. And there you have a grand, then you have a slam champion uh, in Samantha Stozier. Absolutely. So the final commentator, she wasn't on all that much, but Alexandra Stevenson, I can't remember the name of her dad, but he was a famous basketball player. Do you remember, Scott? Um, I do remember that, that was it a, was it a basketball player or in the NFL? I think it was basketball. Oh, um, I remember like you do, but I don't remember exactly who, who it was. Anyway, she, she was a really strong, mostly offensive player back in the day, loved to bang her serve and get to the net, hit big forehands. I just find though her comments I mean, there are things that are something like this. She's serving now at 5-4. If she can win this game, she'll have the set. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I don't find, I feel like, wow, you didn't really tell me anything I couldn't figure out on my own. It's it's not quite that bad yet where uh, I need to hear a comment like that. So... um, I'd much rather be having Renee Stubbs or Darren Cahill or Patrick McEnroe adding some of their wisdom into the broadcast. Now, Scott, I think we've had a pretty good uh, conversation today going back over the women's final and looking how at how the serving statistics can tell us quite a bit. And they also, at the same time that they tell us quite a bit about Fernandez, they told us about Raducano and what a good return of serve she must have had for the results to come out as they did. And then with Djokovic, we saw a relatively poor first serve percentage performance, in addition to an extremely low risk taking tactic within the early in the point, which cost him a chance at the Grand Slam, not being prepared to step his game up and take more offense. And then of course, our few comments at the end, um, I'm not sure we made any friends. Maybe maybe Renee Stubbs is our friend now. <laughs> one, one thing about Djokovic uh, as we get ready to sign off here, there was some indication uh, that something was afoot in the first game of the match. Everybody was just like appalled at the lackluster shot execution in that game and how are you tired at the beginning of the match it's a first game so this whole thing about being exhausted and the whole season being long and the tournament being long and these long matches yes you have to give some credence to that because we're all human beings with human bodies but the point was that Djokovic before he even saw what Medvedev was going to come up with as a counter uh, strategy. And, you know, I think you explained that very nicely in, in the podcast today, Bob. But before that, I think he was probably feeling a little bit off balance. Rod Laver was there ready to give him the championship trophy and, 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 and give him, 
you know, adulation and respect and everything. I mean, it's very hard to, to know what it feels like to be in that kind of position. So uh, I think that that's an important thing for everybody to, uh, you know, just to, to remember that I think there was a mental, emotional aspect to it uh, that, of course, has got to come in there even for someone as as ice cold as Djokovic seems to be. The other thing was that Alexandra Stevenson's father was Julius Irving. That's right. That's so right. You're right. He, he was a leading a scorer in the ABA. Player. Yes. Mm -hmm. So thanks, Bob, for a tremendous podcast today. Thank you. And um, we'll be back. We're not sure what it is, but um, everybody, Scott, is choosing the topic for the next podcast. So be sure and tune in. See you all soon. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone.